First of all, Swami, I'd just like to say uh, thank you so much. I am uh, forever grateful for you coming on and doing this thing with me. Um, I hope I didn't interrupt any of the harvest and or anything you were doing. But... Uh, no, no, it's uh, we we're not harvesting today. We'll probably start again on Tuesday. Okay. Uh, we usually on a given day we'll get up at uh, five in the morning and start harvesting at five thirty, and when it's still dark, and we'll take about fifteen plants, fifteen to twenty plants, and then we hang them in the barn. And then uh, when the barn is full, then we have to wait 10 days or so for the next. Uh, here's Hello, Nikki. Nikki. I just want to say hi, Gary. Nice to meet you in person, sort of over Zoom here. Um, <laughs> as Swami says, it's harvest time, so I have to get to work bucking a bunch of weed down today. It just it doesn't stop. We pretty much go 24-7 uh, at this time of year. Yeah, but I, I just understand. Want to stop. <laughs> well, nice to virtually meet you. Well. What was that? Have a great talk about consciousness. Sunday morning is a good time for that. <laughs> right? It is. It is the, the holy day. Nice to meet you as well, Nikki. That's right. Thanks. Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So what was your first question? Well, my first question to you, Swami, is um, I first noticed you in the High Rollers interview. I think it was recommended to me probably, I don't know, a week or two ago. And I realized how interesting of a man that you seem to be. And you said one thing in there that, I, that caught my attention. And it was um, in Hinduism, it doesn't matter how, how you reach the divine. It's between you and the divine. How would you describe well, what the divine is to you? what the divine is to you oh no to me to you yes <laughs> um um well in uh in sanskrit uh when the hindu hindu people of the religion don't actually call themselves hindu they say they are followers of the sanantana dharma and that kind of translates it's almost impossible to translate uh, but it's uh, Dharma is very often translated as religion, but it's not really religion. It's more like the Chinese concept of the Tao, the eternal cosmic flow. Mm -hmm. And the Sananta Dharma, the Sananta is the eternal glow of consciousness. And so in terms of, uh, you know, I, I often don't use the word God because there's so much baggage, especially in the Western world about what people's image of that is uh you know it's like what the heck someone looks like me must be god whatever uh but uh, you know well i'm not santa claus either you know so uh the idea is that there is a presence there is a consciousness and that consciousness is a continuum from the most inanimate uh solid object maybe even a chunk of concrete to my understanding, has a consciousness within it. Mm. And that consciousness is on its most fundamental level. And then that continuum goes on up into uh, all sorts of higher animals, humans. And then even we're, we're, of course, told about an angelic level. And then, of course, there are always supposedly uh, humans who have become enlightened and sort of come in between the human level and the angelic level. And so there is this hierarchical understanding but the hierarchical understanding of consciousness 
is also a fact that it's a continuum and everything has a consciousness uh, in and of itself. And uh, it tends to recognize similar consciousness. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there is a sort of attach or attraction of molecule to molecule if they are the same. And like-minded people also tend to uh, gather together. But it's, to me, the, the divine is that totality of consciousness. So sometimes I think of it as if you take in a simple sort of arithmetic and you add up the consciousness of every human and then add to that every animal and then add to that every insect and then add to that every sort of even sort of single cell organism. That's mm -hmm. a level of consciousness that actually when you put that all together, that's what the divine is receiving as, as information consciousness. Mm -hmm. And as I say, continuum, so that consciousness is the totality likewise of all inanimate and what we consider non-living entities. But to me, they're all living. You know, they all have a pulse and a rhythm and an energy in them, even if it's a solid stone. And so that consciousness of the divine or the divine consciousness surrounds us. We are bathed in it. We are immersed in it. And, and so as a result, we have access to it. Uh, if you know how to ask the questions and how to, uh, you know, find the library of the eternal uh, consciousness. And so we're in it. We're surrounded by it. And often we feel alienated from it, but we are part of it. And so the ultimate supreme consciousness, to me, can't have pieces. It can't have parts. It can't be separated. And in a sense, all of our contribution to that consciousness is part of our connection to it. And so we are. We are divine consciousness ourselves because we are of it. We are, we are, we make it up. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Mm, I understand. So it's it's pretty much the connection between not only other people, but it's also other beings that have awareness, but also things that also don't have awareness. It's that connection. It's that felt connection that is inside of all of us to this, to this, I guess you could say matrix that we all exist in. It's this, it's that band, it's that frequency band that touches upon everything it's like tapping into everything like the flow like you said the Tao. It's, it's tapping into the flow of the universe essentially and knowing that the flow is our connection to that universe that we live in it's so you said there were some tools and like you know you have to have a certain apparatus to touch that frequency now cannabis is i'm assuming one of your tools to tap into that that wavelength right Oh, well, yeah, it definitely is. And it's one of the, the you, know, uh, you know, there are a lot of talk about whether cannabis is a gateway drug. And to me, it's a gateway into uh, divine consciousness. Yeah. And it's also a gateway into the plant world, right? When we found out not too long ago that we have our own endocannabinoids, we have, we, our body makes cannabinoids, and that they're so similar to the ones the plant makes that our body uses the plant ones to augment the ones that uh, maybe are insufficient within our body. So it's, that's why it's the connection to the plant world. Mm. And so I call cannabis the kind of everyday psychedelic 
because it will alter your mind. It heightens your perceptions. It, it, you know, stimulates all of your sense organs. But at a certain point, it also, I'm rolling a joint here. That's why I keep looking down. So Yeah, that's uh, cool. Do you think? The, I figured. Uh, the, the idea is that the consciousness is continuous and you can tap into it at any point and that there's ways of doing it. And meditation is one of those ways. Uh, sleep deprivation is another one of those ways or an isolation chamber and so on where you, you know, you, you kind of eliminate the chatter that is surrounding us all the time and you can focus on things that are kind of beyond the sensory input. So uh, cannabis can help you do that uh, as well as the other psychedelics, which are much more potent, the mushrooms and the cactus and, and, uh, and LSD and so on. And uh, so they are ways in which you expand your consciousness. And at a certain point, there, there can be a realization that, you know, there is no difference. There are no edges. There are no boundaries. There are no confines to your own personal consciousness. And it merges into and becomes the, the divine consciousness. And uh, so if you can live in that, uh, then, you, then you get all sorts of other help, shall we say. Do you think my that here. what an enlightened being is, is being able to tap into that frequency, but also not living, are they living in that frequency at all times, that, that connection? Because for me, and you know, every, a lot of people on this earth, it's not something like, it's like a frequency that we can tap into, it seems like that connection, but then we lose it through, I don't know, just the, the drama of life or in our incarnation and, or our karma, uh -huh. and we just yeah. lose that. But, well, uh, go ahead. Well, the, uh, the writer, Carlos Castaneda, and his stories about Don Juan, <clears throat> he was talking about that reality and being able to go in to that separate reality. Uh, and so there is, we are, uh, you know, confined in our physical world. And so, but we also have a dream world, which doesn't seem to have the same rules and laws as the waking world. And then there's a higher consciousness world uh, uh, again. Now you said the word enlightenment and just the kind of grammar of that and the word enlightened, enlightenment, it always seemed to me that that implied a final state, a finished state. And it doesn't seem to me that, that, that that's true of enlightenment because it seems to me it's a process. And so like even the Buddha had a certain kind of realization, but then he didn't stop there, right? And it didn't stop, he didn't stop getting input. He stopped, so the, the enlightenment I think is, is never a finished process. It's always, a, as long as you're in a physical body, that this is a process that you're, you're more and more in tune with. And you can, you know, you're, you know uh, as the Grateful Dead song says, sometimes the light's all shining on me and other times I can barely see, you know? So one does go in and out of that higher level of consciousness and you lose it, you know? You, you, those human emotions, you get angry, you get jealous and so on. And so the idea is that let those pass on through. You, you can't, you, you know, you can't blockade them and stop them. It just don't focus them and realize that, well, you're a human being and all of those are kind of, you know, that's what the seven deadly sins are, is all those things that are essentially human, but they take you away from your, your awareness and consciousness of being in the divine. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, before enlightenment, chopping wood and carrying water. 
and after enlightenment, chopping wood and carrying water. And so, you know, life does go on. You have to take a crap, you know, you got an itch or whatever, you get sick. So the idea is that you constantly kind of re-enter that blissful state. Uh, and, and so it's constantly an arriving because the word in Sanskrit for enlightenment isn't quite the same. It's Gyan Udhai is the Sanskrit. Gyan is the knowing, the knowing of supreme consciousness. And Udhai is like a dawning, right? And so it's a dawning of a consciousness, a realization of higher awareness. And, it, you know, dawn happens every day, right? And so <laughs> yeah. it, it's an arising uh, of light. And, and so I think that, like I say, I don't think enlightenment's ever an over and finished process, even though the grammar of our English seems to say so. Whereas the Sanskrit, Gyanudai, is like, it's, a, it's a, an arising, uh, which shows more of a continual kind of thing. And, uh, but I think that actually today, uh, there are a high number of, of enlightened people. And uh, uh, I think that uh, we, that's necessary at this particular moment in, in human history, that uh, there need to be many, many people who have uh, an opening awareness of uh, the uh, imminent presence of the divine consciousness. Nikki, could you get me a lighter? I don't want to leave the set here. So I want to get, uh, I want to smoke this joint here. So... <laughs> Yes. So what, what I got from that is the journey is the destination. Once you realize you come to this realization, you come to this enlightenment, you realize that it, it, there is no end point. It's just that we're seem to be held back by the English language <laughs> in those ways. But I, it's always interesting to me how Sanskrit. We're held back by a social structure, which puts yes. this religion has to be in a church. It needs a priest or something like that. So, yeah. and it's not just the English language, uh, but it's all a social structure that has that sort of structure. Mm. Oh man, it always, it always perplexes me on how, are we supposed to lose our way in this life and then come back to it? Are we, are we, is the point of this life to regain something we've lost? Because that's what it seems like to me is that we're, we're slowly that, that process is regaining something that we've had thousands of years ago, like this, this connection to the divine. Like it seems like in, in the year that we're living in right now, I mean, there are a lot of people that are connecting, but the, the popular majority of the, the human race isn't really on that wavelength of connecting to the divine. It's just low level, um, just like a lot of fear, essentially. It's just a lot of fear. And that fear holds us back from the connection that we just talked about and that uh, touching into that frequency. It, is it something that we're just, it, we were supposed to lose and regain? This is, that, is, that the, uh, is this the enlightenment, I guess you could say? Is this like another renaissance in the time period we're living in? Well, those are interesting ideas uh, in terms of the course of history. I'm not so sure I want to romanticize ancient history that much uh, to say that uh, there were so many more uh, uh, enlightened people. And uh, in, in, the, in the Sanskrit uh, Hindu uh, way of looking at things, uh, their time scale is so much different than, than our time scale. I mean, of course, we have geologic time, which is billions of years and so on. But the biblical time is such a short, short time, five, 6,000 years, right? Yeah. But in the Hindu concept, 
we were in the Kali Yuga, and the Kali Yuga lasts for 400 and what is it, 484,000 years, right? And then, uh, but that's the, the shortest one, right? And then there's the Dvaita Yuga, Treta Yuga, and, and ultimately the, the highest is the uh, Satyuga, the age of truth, and that's 1,600,000 years long, right? And then if you take four of those sets of four yugas, you know, well over a couple, almost two million years, and then four of those equals a manvantara, right? And then four manvantaras equals one blink of the eye of the divine presence, Brahma. Hmm. And then now all of a sudden we're in a stretch of time, which is so vast that the you know, human mind just can't even comprehend it. And so in terms of what we're saying is that this is the Kali Yuga where there's the least amount of truth, the least amount of love and trust between people. And so the, the, the political forces uh, somehow recognize that fear is the main driving force that you can herd people together and you can get them to do things that they might not normally do on the basis of fear, fear of the other or fear of the unknown. And, and so uh, but I'm not so sure it was really that much better any, any previous time. Uh, but who knows? I mean, it's hard to go back in history. The, the, the Four Ages does say, seem to say that there was a time of truth, the, 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 the Satyuga, the Age of Truth. And in the Greek philosophy, too, there's the Golden Age and the Silver Age and so on. And so though there is a whole idea that there was a point at which the human consciousness was more integrated into the total universal consciousness and didn't see a separation. And that's kind of what uh, the Adam and Eve in the Bible is saying, right? They were kicked out because, uh, you know, they had, there, there was a separation that happened before there wasn't. So we're all aiming to get back into that place of no separation, no separation of consciousness uh, from the divine. And therefore, uh, but see, the way I see to do that is, you know, to, 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 to see, feel the divine presence in your own consciousness and, and celebrate that. But in doing that, you then recognize that in anyone else that you encounter, even though they themselves may not recognize the divine presence that they have. And so the practice of seeing the best, the divine, the beauty, the understanding in the other person is the way to augment this consciousness. Mm. So we're all working on it. Well, we're not all working on it, actually. So there, we live in a world of duality, you know, and that to me, that's I, I always try and bring up Harry Potter in these conversations somehow, because the Harry Potter thing is saying, hey, there's a world of duality and there's a whole hidden world of magic and energies and powers that we don't understand how they work. But some people know how to how to use them. Right. But even the world of magic of Harry Potter has a good and evil part, right? So we are always in this duality as long as there is a physical presence, right? But in the end, it all comes, there is a higher unity. And just basically every religion, even a religion based on a duality or a good and evil, always will talk about a higher unity beyond the division, beyond the thing. And so that's, that's what one aims to get to. And that's why the practices of, uh, of meditation and, and various other things, which tend to move away the separation, eliminate mm. the separation. That's what we're aiming for. Mm. See, to me, it's how do we, do you envision a world where it's even, 
it's not possible, right? Because we live in the world of uh, duality. It's not possible for everybody on earth to notice that connection because without the separation, there is, there is no connection. Like, is it possible for the seven and a half billion people on earth, you think, to be able to, like, to literally, can we create heaven on earth? Oh, well, <laughs> there have been people <laughs> promising that for quite some time, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, Jesus with his kingdom of heaven. Uh, but, of course, people have been arguing about what did he mean by that? And is it going to come in the year 1000? Is it going to come in the year 2000? Well, actually, we found out it didn't come at either of those times. And so, uh, you know, where is the kingdom of heaven? Where is this unity with the divine? Um, I think it has to happen in the smallest little thing, in the smallest, tiniest little daily activity where, you know, you some, and you come along and you say, oh, there's just some extra little energy there, a little spark that you receive at a certain point. And it's almost like, you know, a Boy Scout with a little flint thing trying to get a fire to go, this little tiny little spark, right? Uh, but everyone has those little sudden insights, those intuitions, those epiphanies. We have all these words for them. And, and it's just like a light bulb goes off in your head. And so, well, where does that come from? How did that happen? What happened here, right? Mm. And what it is, is this: we're in the midst, we're bathed in this eternal consciousness. And at a certain point, a message comes through into your, into your brain. And then, you know, how do you activate that? How do you act upon it? And does it guide you uh, in a further understanding? And when you find that, that flash and so on, and then you can begin to see, you see it in the eyes of someone else or, or in the smile or in the gesture or something like that. And so we want to celebrate those connections. And uh, it's really in the littlest things, you know. And, you know, there's an old saying, uh, God is in the details, but some other people also say, well, actually, the devil's in the details, too, right? Mm. So that, uh, you know, if you don't get the details right, it's kind of what it's saying, then stuff can happen, can go wrong. But if you do pay attention to the details, then you get into the flow. And I always try and come back to the idea of there is this flow, this cosmic flow. Mm. And if you can tune yourself into it and listen to your inner voice, and, uh, and then actually follow the recommendation of the inner voice is just as important as listening to it, right? Because if you hear the inner voice, and you always do the opposite. Pretty soon the inner voice is sort of really saying, oh, what the heck? I don't need to talk to this guy. He knows what he's doing anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I found over the years that the inner voice can come in the most almost mundane and ridiculous situations. I remember once I was at, we had a storage uh, shed that we rented. We lift up the gate and there was something way, way in the back. And a little voice in my, said, in my head said, you know, if you go up and climb on that thing, you're going to fall and you're going to hurt yourself. So I went up there, climbed up and sure enough, I fell and I kind of, I didn't really crack a rib, but I hurt my, and it was like, and then the voice came the climb on and said, nah, 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 nah. You know, it was like, why didn't you listen? I'm giving you the clue here mm -hmm. and so that's what we so often just disregard it and say that oh that doesn't matter I'm, i can't worry about that and so on and so what i say in the most mundane littlest matters when you get that 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 inner voice that is the voice of truth and, and the, your connection to the divine consciousness do what it says and as you do it whether it says more and more it gets clearer and louder 
right? And so then you sort of say that, well, there's actually an old saying from the Bhagavad Gita uh, when Krishna is talking with Arjuna. And there's a statement that in Sanskrit, it's nishkama karna, perform your duties without desire. And so there's a whole sort of idea that gets back to the Dharma and the eternal flow. If you do what is kind of natural to your station and natural to your own innate abilities and skills, then you're in the flow. And as you're in the flow, you get the assistance of the flow, you get buoyed by it. But the key is not to take credit for it. Let it say, okay, I was able to accomplish this because I was enabled to be in the flow and the flow accomplished it through me. And so it's like, you don't have the desire to get that done. You just say, okay, what is the will of the divine energy? And you become that and you manifest that. Mm -hmm. But you don't take credit for it. That's the thing, without desire. So it's the desire, most, you know, the desire is the one that takes you off, uh, you know, and, and that becomes the selfish part. Mm. And so when you perform the action without desire and you're in the flow, then you're not actually creating new karma that has to be taken care of at another point. But anyway, that's another story, karma. <laughs> I see. So that actually makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's seeing yourself as a servant and, and you're serving selflessly. Mm. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's the highest calling in some ways. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like Mother Teresa taking care of the sick and injured. It just has to be fulfilling your natural duty, which is your natural talent, mm -hmm. right? And then you're not against the flow, you're in the flow. And realize that that's a blessing, that's a gift, yes. right? And then as you serve it, you know, we have that concept in Sanskrit of seva, the service of humanity. And as you serve humanity, then you likewise are serving the divine presence. Mm. I think the problem for most people is they don't even know the flow is a thing. And if they do know it's a thing, they don't know how to tap into the flow. That's, I think that's the biggest well, thing in our world right now. Yes, because of the constraints of, of making a living mm -hmm. and uh, you know how so many people have to have a job which doesn't really fulfill them, right? It doesn't really tap into their natural resources. Now in India, it became codified and solidified into the caste system. And so someone was born into a caste, and even though maybe their natural talents weren't what the caste job assignment was, they still had to be the plumber or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, even that caste system was a, was a violation of being in the flow because you were assigned to something based on what your birth situation was, not based on your innate skill or understanding or talent, right? And so uh, on the other hand, that can lead to sort of, a, you know, an individualism which is very selfish, so that's where the idea of, you know, performing for your service for the greater good, right? And so that, that gets away from the selfishness, right, of following your talent. Mm. But most people don't have that opportunity. They don't have that choice. They have to make a living. They have kids. There's a job. They take the job. And then maybe they go to another job and so on. And so um, it's curious now with, with our lockdown and the, and the uh, pandemic is that a lot of people have, you know, they don't have an identity because they had, don't go to work. So many people's identity or their place in society 
is designed by defined by their occupation, which maybe they had no real choice in actually, right? Yeah. And so now with with COVID, people starting to you know find individual things. So many people are doing individual projects, creative projects, and so on to while away the boredom, right? And so in that process, hopefully there'll there'll be some self discovery, and uh, that you know when everything changes and comes to a different situation where we can go out in public, then hopefully they will continue and carry on that creative endeavor, which is an expression of their of their inner self. That's the important thing. Yeah, and essentially, if you're express, expressing your inner self authentically, you're expressing the divine energy that is like the, the real, like real. There's something about like you can look at a piece of artwork and know if something is just like somebody was just doing that, and it came from just something inside of their soul. Like like I don't know, like the Mona Lisa or just anything by any Renaissance artist. There was something that they created. And it was a creation that just came from, it can only come from that being that was the artist. That's why art is so uh, just so touching to the human being. Because when you have real authentic art, it resonates with you, whether it be music or a painting or a movie, whatever it is, you can tell when something is made authentically. And I think that's that, that authenticity that we feel is kind of like a sense of, this is real this is the real energy this is the way this is the vibe and it's kind of like pointing us in a direction in one way it's like a symbol it's almost like yeah. a religious symbol like real art like real um like really good art i don't know how else to, how else to say it but just the, that genuine art is almost like another religious symbol like the cross or any kind of um uh, sacred geometry or yeah something. well for centuries, all the art was based on Christian or, you know, religious symbols. But mm -hmm. there's another way that we talk about that in our society. And uh, many people use a phrase called in the zone, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you, know, you know, like even a football player, a wide receiver, you know, he's on the 20-yard on the line and all of a sudden it's passed and it's like he's out there fully extended. And how did he possibly catch it? Yeah. <laughs> well, the quarterback and the wide receiver were in the zone, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no ego. There was no separation. They just, this was like pure, pure Zen. And so there's, that's what an artist can be into or, or, you know, say a Jerry Garcia on a riff, right? You know, he's in the zone, right? And it's just a pure channel that comes through them and out to you. And <clears throat> they put their individual mark on it. Yes, of course, but they don't block the flow. And so we have that idea of being in the zone and that really can happen to anyone. Uh, the point is that in the zone, you're totally focused on the task at hand. You don't have your ego there, but the idea is you've also, you know, you've, you've done 5 million layups from the time you were in grammar school, high school, college, and so on. And so here you are, the game's on the line and but a boom, you're in the zone and it goes up and it's done. And so that's the idea that that repetition without ego and you're just in the energy. And we have that in our culture. Uh, and so I think the, the, you know, the relationship with artists and musicians for sure, but we also have it in all kinds of other things, you know, a businessman or a businesswoman, you know, in the zone because they just, they just know, you know, and there's something that they make that decision and everything flows out of that. So anyone can be in the zone and it has to do with, you know, doing all the, uh, all the grunt work beforehand so that you're not thinking about the task. You're just in the energy of the moment. 
You're not thinking about how to do it or whatever, right? You just do it. And so that's in the zone. And I think we have that concept in our society. Uh, you know, unfortunately, so much of our society is about the competition, about winning, about being besting, about, you know, making more money, having more toys, a bigger house, and so on. And so that puts something else into it. Uh, but the real joy of all of those things is being in the zone uh, to make it happen, right? Yeah, it's almost like a form of meditation. If you're fulfilling your purpose, whatever mm -hmm. that may be, it is you're in the same sense as, as a, a meditation session where you're just sitting with your eyes closed. It's still tapping in. I see life as, as energy. Like everything is just different frequencies and energies and um, just different vibrations. And if you, it, it's just like, it's like a vibration that we tap into. And yeah, it's the same it's the same vibration that humans can tap into. I don't know what it is, the vibration of, of love, the vibration of just, uh, just like you said, fulfilling your purpose. It's something special. And it's unfortunate that not every human being can experience that, that ultimate uh, this sense of uh, existing, essentially. It's just, it makes life a lot well, better. Well, that's, that's one of the things that Buddha was talking about is that, the Buddha was in a form of Maitreya, the so-called Maitreya, the one who comes back, repeatedly comes back, in order to raise all, what they call, all sentient beings to a higher level, right? And that's, that gets down back to the idea, of, uh, the idea of the workings of karma, right? And so that maybe you don't get to it in one lifetime. And so that, you know, they, there's kind of an abstract number that is thrown out in, in Hinduism that uh, one has the possibility of 84,000 reincarnations, right? Well, you know, 84,000 reincarnations, if you have, you know, approximately 30 years per, per life cycle, and if they were all human, for example, that's back 3 million years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so what souls are they that are alive today? There's so many more humans alive today than have ever been alive before. You mentioned 7 billion. And so where are all those souls coming from? Right? And where will they go? Will they die? Will they disappear? Are they just gone as energy? Or do they come back? And do they come back necessarily as human? Right? And so, uh, you know, in terms of the continuity and, and non-breaking non non of consciousness, so the dinosaurs, what, 66 million years ago, right? Well, 66 million years ago, do we still have some dinosaur chromosomes in us or something like that? Well, we probably do because what happened to the dinosaurs? They died, they went into the earth, and now they become petroleum or whatever it is, right? But the molecules that made them up were dispersed and rearranged and so on. And who knows, some of those molecules that were in a dinosaur could very well be in us through what food we ate or whatever. And so this continuity over time is something that has an ebb and a flow. And one doesn't necessarily always have human incarnations, right? And even the Buddha supposedly had several incarnations as a deer. Uh, so what are those incarnations and, and how do they work? There's something that dies, that's the physical body. And then also the emotional or the astral body, the body we use in dreamscapes, the body that most people use in their creative endeavors, the, the astral body, and so on. And then finally, there's the causal body, which is sort of embedded in the other two. The, the emotional body or the, the astral body and the physical body, they disappear at death. 
But the causal body somehow or other seems to survive as, as energy, what you said before. And that energy merges with divine energy, but still keeps a discreteness so that it reincarnates. And after so many reincarnations, maybe you start to learn a little bit about how to make it work. Right. And I, one of my favorite movies is, of course, the Groundhog Day, where, you know, Bill Murray keeps coming back until he finally gets through without pissing anybody off, without doing anything stupid or without totally ego centering on what he's up to. Right. And finally, after all of that, he wakes up and now it's another day. Right. So all those were new incarnations until he finally figured out, hey, you know what? It's about love but not selfish love, not domineering love. It's about love to let the other be who the other really is. And so, you know, that's one of the ways in which our society says, okay, fulfill yourself, but also we have to have a way in which you allow others to fulfill themselves, right? Mm. So uh, the karma thing is about, I think we go back and forth in our lives. Each one of us in our lives has been every astrological sign, for example. We've all been women, we've all been men, we've all been fathers, we've all been mothers, and back and forth. And who knows what, maybe we've all been deer, maybe we've been slugs, maybe we've been worms or rattlesnakes or whatever it is, right? But somehow in that incarnation, your relationship to the divine flow then is how your karma is played out. So next time you come around in a physical incarnation, you maybe get a little promotion, right? Because mm -hmm. you actually were a very good rattlesnake or whatever it was, right? So all the souls that are here now are in transit through all that time. And there's some very, very old souls, but there's also some very new souls, right? Or souls that have had more animal and lower organism incarnations until they've gotten to a human incarnation. And there's some teachings which say human incarnation is a great blessing because only in the human incarnation can you get off of that wheel of reincarnations. In the human incarnation, you can get to the realization that the divine energy is everywhere. You are it and it is everyone. And that, that can only happen in the human range of consciousness. So the idea is that don't blow it. You got this chance. How long did it, how many incarnations did it take you to get to this chance? And so uh, try not to waste it, you know, and, and try and, and live in, in according to the, to the Dharma, which is your natural flow. Mm. Yeah, that is uh, an interesting thing that I just learned probably a few weeks ago about I think it's a Buddhist concept where there are, you can incarnate into almost like a heavenly realm and become this heavenly being, but you're still in the cycle of, of samsara and, and, and karma. Like you're still going to be reincarnated. Like there's no way you can reach nirvana in, in those heavenly states. And, and I, I don't know what the actual name for it is, but I guess when only in this human state can you reach nirvana. And it seems like it's not so, it seems like it's not very uh, divine, I guess you could say at times, but if put it that way, then like you said, don't blow it. This is, uh, <laughs> this might be a once in a, uh, a soul's lifetime chance. Now, do you think- I think you get several, human, I do think you get several human incarnations, but yeah, the mm -hmm. idea is that this is a chance that you have. And uh, that's, that heavenly realm, you know, Buddha didn't deny that there were gods and goddesses. Uh, but basically what he says, it's your soul itself that has to do the work to, to realize itself, to liberate itself. Mm. 
and they can be helpful, but you know, you yourself has to do the work about that and you have to fulfill your karmas, right? And so that's the way the Buddha was saying that, hey, you know, anyone can do it, anyone can be there. And that was to me, ultimately the, the biggest gift from the Buddha, which, you know, which is so different from, uh, from the Christian, which is where I grew up, which is, hey, this one guy, he was a son of God. So, I mean, what, what chance have you got, you know? Uh, and so, but the Buddha comes along and says, hey, wait a second, anybody can do this. Here's one way. Don't believe me about this way, but you can try it. And there are other ways too to get to a divine consciousness, right? And then to share it and to raise other sentient beings to that level becomes your seva, your 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 karmic commitment, right? Mm. And so, uh, and the Buddha, of course, talks a great deal about desire as well. But it's curious because in the ultimate deepest level of Hindu philosophy, they talk about the original essence, which uh, we don't really have words for. I like to use the word isness the isness, which had no second, had no beginning, had no end, had no time, no space, and just an isness. And then in the Hindu concept, the isness wanted to play. And so it projected out an other. But the idea that it wanted to play, which is to say that the isness had a desire, but it was a supreme desire. And there's a Sanskrit word for that, icha the supreme desire, which is different from kama, which is lustful desire, right? So the Buddha was talking about those desires which are taking you down into the material plane. But the desire for the, for the oneness to be uh, accompanied by a playfulness, that was cause of the creation of the universe. So the, the, the isness, the oneness projected out, and that became the other, which was then maya, the feminine. And so you have the masculine, which we call in our, in, in the Shiva, and then the feminine, which is the energy Shakti. And then you have the third part of it, which is the relation of Shiva Shakti, mm. right? And so that, you know, like, like the yin-yang sign, right, has the yin-yang as the one side black and the other side white. But the circle around it is actually the relationship and the complementarity, not the opposition, but the complementarity of the male and the female, the yin and the yang, the shiva and the shakti. And so that's the way we have this world of duality. And ultimately, the world of duality leads you back to the world of isness. And that is, you know, that is where the, the nirvana or the enlightenment is. But then, you know, hey, you still got to buy the groceries and, you know. And <laughs> Chop wood the, and carry fix water. Pipe that broke. Yeah, right. No, I, <laughs> I just had to fix some pipes that broke. So I'm digging down in the dirt in a trench and I got, you know, PVC glue all over my hands and put it back together. And, uh, well, actually, there was a sense of accomplishment. It looked good. It worked. And that, now we got water. But there's always that chopping wood and carrying water part about it. Yeah, I noticed that like when I was doing the dishes the other day, I was like, this is actually something divine. It's almost like I surrender to the dishes. I surrender to my, my, my servitude in a way. And, you know, there's always going to be stuff like that in life that's going to happen. Even if you're a monk, there's always going to be, you know, you're going to get a stomachache or something. You have to, it's, it's about surrendering, I think, to that energy and, and surrendering to that flow. Yeah, well, I think that's right. And the fact is that, uh, you know, even when a monastery, there's jealousies and hierarchies and that sort of thing that's going on. But there was a, a great writer, Meister Eckhart from, from Europe, who was saying about, it's not the task that you do, 
it's how you do the task, right? So if you do any task, whatever it is, with total concentration on the task, then uh, and without you know preconception, without desire, and so on, that this this is what I'm doing, and I'm just doing, I'm into it. That then is a form of enlightenment, and and then you'll feel the energy that you are totally connected with it, and you'll become more aware and more observant, and and quite literally, the dishes will get cleaner. You know, <laughs> yes. but it's, it's all idea that this is a task that is part of the flow of the universe. And if you just surrender to it and do it as well as you can, you don't, you don't get any negative karmic points. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you say that. I've seen, I've sometimes thought about karma as almost like the point system of life. It, and it kind of is when you, when you break it down in a simple form, it's just like you, you have good points or you have bad points and you have to, either way, you have to, you, you reap, you reap what you sow. Yeah, well, that's, there's another writer, who uh, Robert Sloboda, who had a, a guru. And his idea was that karma is like, it's like a bank account, right? And in the bank account, you have debits, negatives, and you have positives, right? And then, so there are certain karmas that you, ha you get. You, this is your, in this lifetime, you're dealt certain karmas, so to speak, like a tarot deck, right? And that's your karma for this lifetime. And so you have to fulfill those karmas one way or another. And then how do you do that? That's back to what Krishna said, nishkama karna, without desire, fulfill your role. So that now you have an encounter with someone else and you're a male and that's a female. Well, maybe 200 years ago in different bodies, you, had, you were the female and that was the male. And then how did you react? Did you, you know, do something and so on? A negative thing? Well, now that person in new incarnation has the same opportunity to do that negative thing back to you, mm. right? But they can transcend it by not doing that. And then that karma would be leveled out, right? And in the same, if someone you have, you know, say someone and in, in, in a previous incarnation, you were the, the son and that other person was the father. And now this time around, you're the father and that person is the son. And you have an idea that, okay, something happens and you have the idea to neutralize and transcend that karma. You did a very good thing for that person. Do they have to do it back for you now? If they do, then the karma keeps going. So in some senses, good karma isn't really any better than bad karma because it's still something owed to the bank, right? Mm. So in the idea of your living lifetime, those are karmas that you have to fulfill. And that's dependent on your astrological sign, who your mother and father were, various other things, right? And so if you fulfill that karma without desire and perform your actions without desire, you don't create new karmas. You're finishing up the ones that you were given in this lifetime by neutralizing each one by going beyond and meeting it with love and compassion, right? Not easy to do, obviously. <laughs> it's always a job, right? I can say this very simply, but to live it, of course, isn't so easy. So if you don't, if you act purely out of fulfilling the divine will without your own personal desire in this lifetime, you're not making new karmas that go into the future. And if you do that so completely through meditation and through you know, as, as the Buddha said, the Eightfold Noble Path, whatever, then likewise, all those karmas that are still in the bank, <laughs> the ones of good karma to your whatever it was, and the ones of bad karma to whatever it was, by fulfilling this lifetime, you may not have to do those. And that's mm. when you get to the liberation. 
But the Buddha says, okay, I got liberation, but hey, wait a second. There's all these other souls out here that are suffering. So now I come back voluntarily to say, okay, I'll do what I can to help you folks realize that, you know, there's, you know, that there's this possibility. But remember the Buddha, when he was alive, he wasn't really ready to take his mother and, and his wife into, into his teachings. He had that sort of social, historical, cultural thing that women weren't, you know, to be monks. Women weren't allowed to have. And so his cousin, Ananda, just at one point said to him, well, uh, you say you want to come back and raise all sentient beings. Yes, I do, said the Buddha. And so uh, Ananda, his cousin, said, well, uh, I believe that uh, women are likewise sentient beings. And the Buddha said, yes, that's true. Well, if in fact women are sentient beings and you're here to raise all sentient beings, why don't you take your mother and your wife into your order and, and raise their consciousness as well? And he said, oh, good point. But he had to be kind of talked into it, right? Mm. Because of the social, cultural environment that he was in, right? But able to transcend it is the thing. Right. So the Buddha enlightened was still enlightening. Right. Still coming to him. Realizations were still coming to him. And so mm. that's the way in which karma works in terms of if you perform whatever it is without the selfish desire, without the ulterior motive. Again, very difficult to do. Not easy to do at all. Right. But in that every encounter with another human being, you may have a karmic relationship. If you realize that, you can transcend that karmic relationship and you're both liberated in that moment from that thing. So. I see. I see. So it's not about creating good karma or even bad karma. It's just not even creating karma at all through your not acting through your desires, acting selflessly. Right. Be and being in the flow. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're in the flow, the karmic flow, uh, then uh, then that equally and, and it, you know it is out of compassion, right? That's that's the center of it. Nishkama without desire and with passion, so without and with compassion, which as I say, that's you know it ain't easy, you know. And we and the and the few people throughout history who've managed to accomplish this, we know their names. Now, there are many other people who probably accomplished it whose names we don't know, but we do know so many of these people, you know, uh, you know, Confucius, Lao Tzu, uh, Buddha, you know, Krishna, you know, all those different people, uh, various saints and so on, uh, you know, Muhammad, various, you know, all of these different people have had these kinds of realizations. They're always shaped and, and, and controlled by the cultural milieu that they arrive in and that they live in. They, no one can ever quite escape that. And, and so that's the thing. And that's why there's so many different uh, ways of expressing this truth, right? There's an old Sanskrit saying, the truth is one, the wise call it by many names. And so that's one of those things that uh, we say that there's so many ways to name the reality, but the reality itself is that flow which is beyond time or space and uh and and doesn't have any point of origin always mm. always is yes and it's beyond words it's beyond conceptualization any kind of imagery only like these these words like symbols that we use can only point you in the direction but that flow is more of just like a felt presence yeah but you can know it you see that's the other thing there's you can know this presence and, and actually, you can witness it through your senses, but normally 
the senses can deceive you just as often. But there's a way of knowing the divine presence, which is knowing from inside. And that's where we come to the teachings that cannabis and the other psychedelic plant substances and so on, that they give us. That they give us a way of knowing differently than you know, sticking your finger in the fire or you know, reading a book or, or adding up six numbers or so on, or following someone's expert advice. There's a different way of knowing from these. And this kind of knowing uh, is a knowing that's so deep inside where it occurs, where it happens in your consciousness, that it's not subject to doubt, right? And it's not even really so much subject to belief, right? It's a knowing, right? You had that experience, there's no way to doubt it. It was so profound and so deep and so completely took over your consciousness that that's a truth, right? And so it, it goes beyond any cultural, social uh, limitations, but nonetheless, we always live in those. Mm. So it's that way of knowing. And once you become familiar with that way of knowing, uh, as I said very early on, you follow that inner voice, right? And, and, and it gives you even better advice as you go along. Of course, all along the way, we always don't take it from time to time. We always do <laughs> step off, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, it's not a constant as far as I've experienced so far. There are total moments of wonderment and, and, and totally involvement and total without ego, completely submerged into, or are uh, merged into a higher reality and so on. And then, uh, then you get hungry and you have to take a leak. <laughs> you know, there's a constant uh, fluctuation of in and out. And so uh, at a certain point, what, you know, what we're told is that the samadhi or the nirvana is the place where that separation doesn't happen anymore. That the separation, you know, that is beyond the beyond. But normally people then have that moment of immersion and merging and then come back into a physical form because they still have karmas to complete. And that, mm. that's the task for that, for that year. Mm. How did you come to this path and become Swami Shatanya? Because I know before you were a filmmaker, right? And um, you went and you made a movie where you filmed a bunch of spiritual icons, right? Well, yeah. Um, although, well, yeah, that's a long, long path. And I think everyone's path is unique. And I'm sometimes reluctant to talk about what happened to me along the way, because it's certainly not going to be what happens to anyone else. Mm. Um, but there are key moments, definitely, and realizations. Are Not just a filmmaker, I was an artist, a, a painter, a photographer. Uh, I've even done some, you know, uh, toyed with modern dance and so on. Uh, I was very much into creative expression in many, many forms. Uh, the film you're talking about is a film originally called Sunseed, and now it's been reissued called, it's called Sunseed the Journey. Uh, and it's been kind of added to a little bit. Uh, and uh, one of the people in it is Baba Ramdas, who's featured. And, uh, and there are various other spiritual teachers who were very active uh, in, uh, in the United States, particularly uh, California, New York, in uh, 19, late 60s, early 70s. We made that film in 71 to 73. 
and we it dealt with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and uh, Jewish practitioners and so on. And we we traveled to many places to uh, to Israel, to Iran, to Nepal, to India. We filmed around the United States, and. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of mini encyclopedia of the different spiritual teachers who were happening at that time. Uh, and obviously it profoundly influenced me, uh, but I'd always been sort of, uh, you know, a spiritual quest or uh, as my father had been as well. And actually I have several ancestors who were uh, uh, Methodist and Presbyterian ministers. And so uh, in a certain sense, uh, I come from the priestly caste, and if, if we had such caste, right? Uh, and I studied some of that and philosophy and, and theology in college. But the big thing was we're working on that film and traveling to those places and meeting the teachers, meeting the gurus, really on a one-to-one -one basis. And when you've got a movie camera up here and you've basically got a close-up of that, of that teacher's face, and it's like you're getting basically eye contact with them for 45 minutes, a couple hours. There is some sort of subtle transmission that happens. And so after I worked on that film, I went by myself. Well, actually, I had uh, my, uh, well, as we said at that time, my old lady, uh, my girlfriend at that time, we went uh, and traveled to, uh, to India overland from uh, England. And, you know, basically went all the way to Nepal and then into Goa. And all the time I was reading about Hinduism and, uh, and Buddhism and practicing yoga asanas and so on. Um, but anyway, I, at a certain point, I didn't go back to India and I went to South America. I was here in the States and California and so on. <clears throat> and then uh, my current wife, Nikki, uh, she and I took off for India in the, in, in the mid 80s. And uh, then I kept doing more photographs and we went to numerous temples and we met all these teachers and gurus and started to really practice the rituals of Hinduism as well as to do yoga and also to read more and more of the ancient uh, religious texts of India, the, the Vedas, especially the, uh, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and so on. And also familiarized with the stories of the, of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and so on. So just absorbing, immersing in the, in the Indian culture for years and years and years. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> then at one point, they, they have a festival every three, three years in India called Kumbh Mela. And it happens at four different places. So it's a 12 year cycle when it comes back to its first place. And they're like, can be 30, 40, 50 million people at these festivals. And they're all bathing in the sacred river, particularly the Ganges. And so it was there that uh, at the one in uh, 1998 in Kumamela in, uh, in Hardwar near Rishikesh in, in the foothills of Himalayas that I received initiation from Swami Subodhananda uh, with actual drops from the Ganges River. Uh, and that's when, uh, when I became Swami at that point. And, uh, and from then on, it's been a whole other journey, I have to say. I, from that point, I traveled around a lot of India, uh, in South India, all over the place, went to, I don't know, how many, you know, 40, 50, 60 different temples and uh, did worship ceremony and all of these. And was also spending time up in the Himalayas uh, three and four months at a time, meditating three, four times a day uh, and things like that. So there's a certain amount of, uh, of discipline but to me, there was also a certain amount of just like a bestowal of grace from the divine energy that just hit me kind of like a, a lightning bolt on several occasions where I really literally felt a jolt 
of a serious, almost electrical jolt of energy that came into me and felt like my body, the molecules in my body were like activated in a different way through these energized, I mean, literal figural energized bolts of energy. And uh, so that they, uh, they're the kind of things that, that, that happen and happen you experience in such a deep level of consciousness that uh, there's no way you can doubt that it happened or you can doubt that, that somehow you're now different. Mm. You think it was some sort of like opening of uh, some chakra or the hot chakra or the Kundalini energy? Well, definitely that. I'd been doing meditation and also um, there was actually, you know, certain sort of divine intervention. It was like part of it was that uh, uh, Nikki and I are very much worshipers of Shiva, the Lord of the dance and the, and the Lord of, uh, of, of the death and rebirth and so on, the Lord of creation. And so he, at one point, separated us and sent Nikki back to the States and sent me up into the mountains. And so for about six years, we, you know, we communicated and she would come and visit and so on, but we were separated. And all of that was for me to be able to spend more time up in the mountains by myself and for Nikki to be more developing her own, uh, you know, her own desire to create altars and to work in, in community. And so we both had our different assignments from that, but we really felt that it was that uh, the hand of Shiva that had said, okay, you guys, you're not getting anywhere by just hanging out and smoking dope in Goa. You got to get busy. You got work to do. And the work is in the public. And so that once, once uh, one of my teachers said to me, uh, after I became Swami, he said, uh, now you belong to the people. And that, that that's my service is to, and another message was to share the knowledge uh, that, that keeps on coming through. And, and to those people who are, are able to, to hear the message to, uh, you know, and, and it's not my message. It's just, it's again, what's just coming through. Uh, and the goddess uh, of the goddess Mukambika, who is Maha Kali, Maha Lakshmi, Maha Saraswati, she empowers me and enables me to be able to talk. Uh, with that, with that knowledge that 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 I've that I've been given, and so it's through that divine intervention that that I'm able to be to make this service. Mm. Yeah. So you see yourself almost like as a channel, as like a as just a, a fixture of transmission to these divine energies. Um. Well, without sounding egotistic, yes, actually, because I, it is to me, it's it does come through. And uh, I felt it many, many times when I used to do watercolors. There were times when actually I realized I wasn't moving the brush. There was some creative energy surging through that was moving the brush. And I was just letting it happen. And so that, uh, that's the thing where that, you know, you let the energy flow through you. Uh, without the desire and, and without taking the credit for it and just being humbly thankful for the fact that it, it gets manifested that way. Mm. Mm. I know what you mean. It's that flow that we talked about. Even if it is just, you know, it's, it's anything you do. It, it's tapping into that flow and that is tapping into the, uh, what was the goddess you said? Well, the goddess is, uh, she captivated both of us, totally uh, overwhelmed me. Her name is Muk Ambika, Sri Muk Ambika. Muk is a Sanskrit word meaning silent, silence. And Amba Ambika is the mother goddess. So she's the mother goddess who overcomes the demon of silence. 
And mm -hmm. so the way that we humans can communicate with each other and share our insights and, and understanding and love and compassion is through, through, through sound, through, through music, through words and so on. And so the goddess is, is a combination of Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth and beauty and just of well-being, uh, of fertility and uh, Kali, who is the, the goddess of time and change uh, and uh, death, and, and Saraswati, who is the goddess of learning and music and creativity. And the three of them together are seen as this one goddess, Sri Mukambika. And so there's a very tiny little temple dedicated to her in South India, in Karnataka province, where Nikki and I, uh, we were sent there by some friends and uh, we've been, the first time we went there, I believe was 1986. And for many, many years, we went back every year and spent a week or so. At one point I spent about six or seven weeks there in the temple, getting special teachings from our teacher there, uh, Swami Chidananda Giri, His Holiness Swami Chidananda Giri, and from another man who was also another equal teacher, uh, Nambiar was his name. And the, and the priests themselves, who were also very much uh, transmitting uh, energy and information. And so uh, I particularly spent an awful lot of time in that little temple town in South India. And it, it's where uh, I've, been, I've been given the special blessings of the goddess uh, with the caveat that uh, I have to share it. I have to, I have to talk. I have to, she's given me power to, to be able to talk like this. But she also has the power to shut me up when I need to just stop and I'm, I'm, you know, saying stupid stuff or whatever, or saying, talking to people who wouldn't be able to receive it. And so then I say, okay, well, I don't need to say that because there's no way I understand these people could receive it. Not that they're bad or whatever it is, they're just not ready to receive that. So uh, I want to thank you very much for being able to receive what I've been able to say uh, by just uh, and asking the questions and smiling and so on because uh, yeah it's it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to uh, to talk about these things so i want to thank you to to let me do this well i thank you so much for um giving the transmission swami uh you know i'm just i'm just the, i'm just receiving the energy from you you know i'm just here listening and so is the audience as well um yeah i mean this is this is an awesome opportunity and i I think what's so interesting about you from what I know about you is you seem to have so many teachers. And if you did this film, you've, you've took in that transmission, that energy from just, uh, I don't know, do you have an exact number of how many people that you've spoken to? Just like, I mean, <laughs> what's an estimate? Like, well, do you have an estimate? That's an interesting idea because a friend of ours, uh, we're talking about, we had a little uh, Zoom talk about uh, our most influential teacher, our most unforgettable teacher or something like that. And so this other friend, he said, well, you know what? I did, an, I did a calculation of how many teachers I've had in my life from, you know, lower nursery, nursery school, kindergarten. And then he was Jewish. So he went to the shul, right? And then grammar school and high school. And then he went to graduate school and then he became a lawyer. And he said, just a simple count, it was 256 teachers or something <laughs> like that. Uh, that he had along the way. And uh, in addition to that, there's a, uh, a famous, there's a guru, kind of a mythological guru in India called Dattatreya, uh, the, uh, the teacher with three heads. And he has four dogs and the four dogs represent the four Vedas, the most sacred scripts, uh, scriptures of India. But he claims to have had 24 gurus. 
right? And he calls the sun and the moon his gurus and various other forces of nature and animals and so on. And so in terms of teachers uh, or a guru, uh, it's someone who causes you to, to make a change in your life. Whatever that is, you know, maybe you have a guitar guru or, a, you know, or, you know, a, a baseball batting guru or whatever it is, someone who then, you know, ha knows it and really knows it and is able to transmit it. But the point is that as a result of that interaction, you change and you grow and, and then uh, then you carry on with that. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I have had very many teachers and uh, Part of that is why I now I do revere all of religions and I see Christianity in a different way uh, and Judaism and so on. Uh, I've learned a lot from the Islamic traditions, uh, Buddha and so on. And I think that's kind of like a very 21st century, uh, particularly Californian or, you know, American kind of way of doing things where you amalgamate and consolidate numerous different truths. Uh, and... Uh, and so that we now have the capacity to fly all over the world and through internet now even more we have with a click of the button we can access you know ba the basic principles of any religion uh, and look at any art and hear any music and so in that sense the consciousness the total totality of consciousness is more present for everyone in these days than it ever has been and the level of communication and the way we can, you know, look at animals and insects and, and see that world and, and see the microbiological world. And, you know, I'm discovering as a cannabis farmer that there's actually a living world underneath the soil, right? And that's just as complex a world and just as alive as the world in the ocean or as the world in the land and so on. And so all these ideas of the fact that there's a continuity of life as above, so below, that everything is a reflection of everything else. And so uh, you see this, uh, and now we have the option, like I said, of you know, encountering every religion, every philosophy uh, with just a click of a mouse. And uh, it's an exciting thing, but it can be overwhelming. And that's where very often sometimes a teacher is very helpful. Um, and on the other hand, I've also learned an awful lot without teachers. Without, you know, there's a whole sort of guru tradition in India and various other things like the monastery where you have to do this strictly religious uh, hierarchical, you know, sign stuff and so on. And that's in Hinduism too. But there also always is the idea of direct transmission. And just the other fact of also, I think, is that uh, previous incarnations, that in previous incarnations, I was also uh, a, a yogi and I was, uh, I was a Catholic priest at one point, And then I was a, a poet in China at one point. And all these incarnations uh, then actually enable you to have an expanded consciousness that now in this world, which is expanded in terms of communication, all of that stuff is meaningful. So yeah. there's no one tradition for me that carries all the truths. And all of them do carry some truths. Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful way to put it, because it does seem like that, how our past incarnations, so put it this way, I, for the, 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 the period of time that we live in right now is one of the most amazing times to be a human being in terms of knowledge and just being able to, like you said, expand consciousness. I never had to leave where I was born 
in order to learn all of these things. I just go on YouTube. <laughs> I listen to Ram Dass on YouTube or other, um, you know, other people like him or just read. I can have a book uh, like the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita. I can look that up online and have it within 20 seconds. And it seems like, I, I love how you said your previous incarnations were working up to this incarnation because it always, it always perplexes me to be in this incarnation. It seems very unique to be at the advent of the internet, the connectivity of the entire globe. It's, it seems like this is the incarnation that we're in to actually, like it is the awakening because before we, were, we weren't connected to each other. Now there's just, like you, it, it is, it can be overwhelming, but if you use it in the correct manner and you know where to, where to um, place your pursuits, you can become a person of just infinite, I don't want to say infinite knowledge, but there is infinite knowledge out there for you to, to take in. You just, you just have to pay attention not to, you know, watch too many cat videos on the internet, like know where to place your pursuits. And then you can, you can just learn, you can become like your own guru in a way, like you don't need anybody else. You can, you can just learn from like you like you did but from all of these various amounts of teachers now we have so many teachers at our disposal it is like we take this technology that we have for granted because you swami actually had to go to india and go to these places in order to receive these transmissions when because you didn't have the internet in the, back in the 60s and 70s but now people that are growing up and you know be coming in, into their 20s and become coming into adulthood if used correctly, the technology that we have, we can have these like beings of just uh, like everybody can be just so, I don't want to say enlightened because that is, a, it's like a buzzword, but just so um, I'll say enlightened. I'll say <laughs> we can become this like a being collectively that we couldn't before. Like this incarnation allows us to see the light. It allows us to see the connection between all of us in this world and, and to really see what's going on behind the scenes. Through yeah, well, yeah, we keep using the word incarnation. And if we take that back to the Latin or Spanish, carne is meat, right? Mm -hmm. So this, uh, when our consciousness is in meat, it, it is in the meat of our bodies, that's one thing. But I wonder uh, how long we will still need our bodies. Like you said, I had to go to India physically with my body, but you can tune into a certain amount of that transmission just by staying where you are and having it on the internet. And the other thing that came into my mind is there are these ancient myths of Atlantis and Lemuria, right? And one of the myths of Atlantis is that they got too smart for their own good. And they made, uh, they made some sort of powerful weapon that destroyed them. And that's one of the ways they look at the myth. Because at some point, Atlantis disappeared. And Lemuria likewise. And that's also, again, the lesson of the Yugas, right? That the, the, the era of truth, 1,200,000 years, uh, that was actually uh, that a long, long time ago. But that that was an era of, 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 of more love and more consciousness and so on. And how many times does that repeat? And so I think that uh, we are at a stage where we could be like Atlantis and through the pride or hubris, as the Greeks used to call it, in our knowledge and, and how we figure, hey, we've got this figured out, we control nature and so on. And that at some point, 
we either blow it up or we destroy it through climate change and that sort of stuff. And so we are on, on a cusp, on a, on a razor's edge here. And, uh, you know, the idea that consciousness is eternal. Consciousness never goes away. You know, in the sense of the, the, the Einstein E equals MC squared, I see that not as a limit, but as just one formula for the manifested physical world. But the E there is like consciousness. So consciousness has no limit, no beginning, no time and end. But at a certain point, the physical body always has an end. And, you know, how many times has uh, a galaxy disappeared or a planet blown up or a star or whatever? And so that, you know, at what point do we not need the body? Because our consciousness has, has evolved in such a way and we've now you know, tuned into the conscious, we've merged into it. And to me, at a certain point, when I was like, when I was at about 18 or 19, that was the peak of the, uh, of the doomsday clock and the Cold War with Soviet Union and so on. And like we were like two, two minutes away from, you know, the world blowing itself up with nuclear weapons and so on. And a flash came to my mind as a late teenager as I said, well, if it's all going to blow up, how do I get to a place where I don't need my body to survive, where I don't need my body to have consciousness? And so that, uh, and how does that, how do I get to that place? And so that was a realization, like I say, I had when I was uh, probably just a senior in high school or something like that. And in some ways, the rest of my life has been sort of getting to a place of, well, how do I ca carry on consciousness without, an without a flesh, without a meat, without an incarnation? And so, uh, but do I still keep a discrete individuality somehow in that place? Right. And so all the studies I've had with Hinduism and, uh, you know, causal body, astral body is, you know, physical body and so on, the yoga and basically, ultimately meditation is that discipline so that you can be in the fullness of consciousness and you don't need the meat. You don't need the fleshy body for that. Now, I mean, that's kind of wild speculation and I don't know how that's supposed to be taken or anything like that, but there is some way of consciousness transcending materiality and then re-emerging into materiality when, when that happens. And an awful lot of religious myths have, have, that, have that concept. Mm. It's like a, it seems like a cycle of just awakening back to uh, the, the, the material world. It's, it seems like a, the, we go from cycles. It's just like this the universe is like this flow and it's just this wave. Yeah, exactly. And, and, exactly. and that, like we talked about right. before. And that's what Kali But the Kali Yuga as the, you know, the shortest one, the most, the one with the least truth, and then the, the age of truth. And they, and one goes through and then the other one starts. And like the Mayan calendar also. I mean, we had uh, 2012 was the end of 13 cycles. But wait a second. It's the beginning of another 13 cycles, right? And it's going to be another how many thousand years and so on. And that cyclic thing. And that's what all of nature tells us. You know, new moon, full moon, high tide, low tide, equinox, solstice, all of that sort of cyclical thing. Uh, and so, you know, that's a pattern that uh, seems to be, it seems to be universal. Mm. You know, it seems to you know, be part of all manifestation and all, uh, all visualization of the abstract. 
Yep, that's the order of the universe. That is the, there's just some kind of, there's something pushing us through time. And it seems to be like that order. Like I think there is, there's some people that subscribe to the idea of everything is just chaos and there's no order. It's just random computations upon whatever we're living in. But I don't think it's all chaos. I think they're actually, the key is finding order in that perceived chaos. And then you, you like look at the little details in life and you can see it. Like when you yeah. go out in nature, yeah. like you go out in the woods, you can you just see this order of the universe at a macro level and a micro level. And it's there if you just pay attention. Right. Well, it might be like chaos, but the chaos also goes, that's a theory of chaos and entropy and so on. And, and, and related to string theory, right? And so one, one example of string theory is, have you ever had a tangle of rope or wire or fishing line or something like that, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't quite coil it up perfectly, right? And you put it down and then you don't do anything with it. And you come back four or five days later and you pick it up and all of a sudden it's this mess, right? It's this total tangle. What happened, right? Well, entropy happened, chaos happened, right? And yet chaos created form. So you, now you pick that thing up and it's a bunch of wire and so on or whatever it is, but it actually has a form and a shape. It has a three-dimensionality, which you didn't make. It's just some sort of chance can, random chaos made it, right? And there's an old joke about India. It's like the United Nations sent out a bunch of people to study India and they were just really curious about the economy. They studied the social, they studied the economy, they studied the religion, they studied the politics, they studied all those things. And they came back and they made a report and they said, well, you know, we can sum it up in just a few words. Chaos works, right? <laughs> they said, because there's no other possible explanation about how India could survive as a country or feed its people or any other way is that somehow chaos works. So there's the randomness and then there's the, the, the rep repetitive predictability and there's always this flow of random and predictable and uh, somehow or other, uh, as human beings and as nature, we do sort of muddle through, right? But uh, where we're going in terms of chaos right now, uh, I think there's always a higher consciousness and that's, that transcends all of that and that uh, we know we can tap into that. And that's, that's our job to tap into that and to share with people how to do that. And once you tap into it, you begin to recognize that awareness and that energy and just about not just about in everyone sometimes you have to look for it but everyone has a divine spark in them and so our our task is to help them you know kindle that spark and make it uh, part of their consciousness 100 percent, swami i couldn't have said it better myself that is 100% the truth. And I think I probably have to get off. Nikki's looking at me. I got to get some work done today. Actually, she says she's not looking at me, but. Uh. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was going to say we can probably wrap it up. That's a great point to wrap it up. We all have, um, we all have a, a, a sense of mean. We have to come back to the sense of uh, recognizing that divine frequency that's within all of us. I think that's summing it up and, we all do it in our own way. We all have our own tools, but it's always there. And it, it, for me, it brings me a sense of peace, knowing that there is that, you know, we don't want to say God, but there is this, there is something else that is guiding us along through time. And we can call it the source. We can call it God. We can call it uh, 
love. You can, it's, it, but it's there. It's, it's, there. There's something always there for us. And we serve that. Uh, we just have to find how to serve that in the best way possible in this lifetime. Yeah. The truth is one. The wise call it by many names. And any service to humanity is service to the divinity. So anyway, anyway, thanks, thanks a lot. And uh, blessings to you. Blessings to and you as well. Carry Swami. on the quest. <laughs> Thank you. You carry on as well. I hope you um, have, a, have a good harvest. And uh, yeah, I'm forever grateful for you coming on here, man. Okay. Om Namo Narayana. Om Namo Shivaya. Namaskar. Bye-bye. Namaskar.